Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for the Philanthropy Journal. In this episode, friends David Joyner, President of Joyner Media and Strategies, and Michael Goodman, Senior Vice President of Capital Broadcasting Corporation, get right to the heart of some of the most challenging issues facing not just the town that they both love, but the nonprofit sector as a whole. David, a Rocky Mount native, is part of the next generation of civic leaders in a town that has a long and storied history of civic leadership. Michael is spearheading an ambitious revitalization project of the Rocky Mount Mills. Listen in as these two discuss community improvement and the work that they have done in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. I'm Michael Goodman, Senior Vice President of Capital Broadcasting Company. I'm David Joyner, President of Joyner Media and Strategies Incorporated, a market and PR firm located at the Rocky Mount Mills in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. All right, we're going to get right into the hard question. What's the hard question? What's it like being black in Rocky Mount? I would say it's uh, it's like being black in North Carolina. It's the best way to describe it. It's a, it's been a very interesting experience. Is the best way to put it. I have endured things I never thought I would have to endure. Um, and my experience here, especially because I've lived in the rural area and in the urban area, I mean, that was two completely different experiences. And so. We were poor in a rural area, and rural poverty is different from urban poverty in, in completely different ways, and especially in the relationship to other people. So even though I grew up in a rural area, there were I saw less people that looked like me just by the proximity of where I went to school, but I didn't pay attention to it as much. That, that, that's what I'll say. Because you were used to it, it wasn't as much of a conversation. You were around like generally people in the same economic bracket, um, you know, and that type of thing. So most of my classes, there were a lot of white kids, but I didn't notice that it wasn't a thing I was consciously thinking about. So the relationship to who I dated and who I talked to, just proximity of that's who was there. Um, when I we moved into middle school, it was, I, well, I'll be honest, in middle school, the first time it ever hit. Because when we didn't get to sit with our classes anymore, and you had to choose where you sat at the lunch, it was the first time I felt like I had to choose based on race. I will never forget as long as I live. Really? Yeah, I will never forget. And this Middle is, school. And that happens that if you talk to a lot, of, especially educators, they'll tell you it happens across the board everywhere because that's where you really start to make those. So racial identity is created mm-hmm. in middle school. It's, it's where you're at that Created being a keyword. Yeah. I wouldn't say created. It's just you become aware of it. That's the best way to say it. Self-aware. Yes. Because the difference is everything is so managed by teachers and stuff up until middle school where you get really get a certain level of freedom and flexibility. Like at lunch, we sit with our class elementary school. Middle school, you, you just went to lunch, period. So all the kids, it was just shocking. I remember standing over my lunch break and seeing all the white kids on one side of the room, all the black kids. And they had just naturally segregated themselves. And um, and I really, I remember standing there being like, where do I go uh-huh. sit? Uh-huh. And uh, it, it was a, that, that was a real big moment. Yeah. That's, you know, that's a, <clears throat> I don't use naturally segregated, I use self-segregation. Yeah. But that is a term I use about Rocky Mountain a lot mm-hmm. is self segregation. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the community is the lunchroom. Yeah, right. And you know, a, a lot of the reason for that is just communities like Rocky Mountain have a lot of historic baggage. Yeah, right. And I'm I'm saying baggage in a good way and baggage in a bad way. But there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of um, context, and um, as a result of that, you know, people have moved towards historically uh, what they're most comfortable with, and we haven't. Put the community in a position to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know that's the difference I think between a rural and an urban environment. In an urban environment, you don't have a choice. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's diversity is in front of you every day. It's true. You it's can't just, avoid it. 
True. Here's the, the difference, though. In urban environments, there is a more diverse number of people. They are not living together. They're, every piece of that in the world is back to self in diverse ways. That's why the majority of your major cities in the United States are the most segregated cities in the country. Chicago, Baltimore, DC, you just go down the list. Like, they're diverse in numbers, but the people aren't living together. Like, Pew Research did a study on it, and it's affecting how we vote and everything because the difference is, yeah, we may feel good and we have diversity, but look at our neighborhoods. They made, Time Magazine did an article that made it brilliantly. They were like, when you look at Americans, that we're diversity in thought, not diversity in action. So we like the idea of diversity, but when we go home and our close interaction, look at social media, look at weddings, they pointed that out, and when you look around the room, that room never looks like the idea of diversity that we claim. And these are our closest friends, people we spend the most time with, and I think that that's the, the harder issue. And in rural areas, it's just more evident. Well, hard, okay, agreed. But like, yeah. come on, baby steps down the hallway here. Yeah. I mean, we're not that far out from segregation. No. You know, we're not that far out from slavery. If yeah. you really think about it in terms of the span of the world. Yeah. We're not, we're infants in our new way of being, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think generationally, one thing we talk about Rocky Mountain is generational shift is really critical mm -hmm. to this community. It's critical to every community. But, you know, one thing I've become <clears throat> so fascinated about, about you was that you're playing a big role as a leader in this community. And you're playing it in a way that is balanced. You are an advocate for all. And you're working for the good of the community, for all in the community. And that's a powerful thing for any community, but especially for a community like Rocky Mountain. And all we can really hope, right, is that there's more and more and more data joiners out there. And yeah. that at the end of the day, the leadership of the future will no longer be diverse only in thought. Yeah. Right? No. We'll be diverse in action. Why did you stay in Rocky Mountain? Oh, that's an easy one. I, uh, I believe it was a responsibility. Like, it's my home, is the best way to put it in. And I would, the one thing I would say I was lucky to have, and I appreciate that more now than I ever did with my parents who ingrained in me that I had a responsibility to community, that my self-worth, my, my measure of success long-term to them, yeah. no matter, my mom would tell me when I was, I would remember it to this day, she had to wash us and uh, we didn't have running water, so she was with tin that she would heat and put on a wood stove and like she would give me a bath like beside when I was in elementary school. And she would tell me in elementary school constantly, you're gonna have blood on your hands if you don't spend your life in service. Uh, I don't care how much money you make, I don't care where you go. Like, you have responsibility to people. My dad, when I was coming home from college, working two jobs to pay off the balance to try to go back to college, it was a routine every summer. Like, one night I passed out on the table, and because it pissed me off, I'll never get it. And he woke me up, and he was like, I passed out from working. I worked from 5 o'clock in the morning at one job, and then went to the, the steakhouse and worked that night. And he said, uh, I appreciate all you're doing, and I really appreciate how hard you're working. But not even your work can, like, block time. For service, you need to carve out time for service, and I want to be like, dude, like, you know, <laughs> you know, like, well, what do you want from me? Um, but so, Rocky Mountain to me is it's it's people that I have that gave a lot to me, like from every walk of life, like, and, and my love for diversity too came from growing up, like people who, my, to be honest, like people who I grew up being told like that person is racist. You need to keep away from that person, and they may have done things that, yeah. But I've gotten to know them and they've been mentors to me. 
and and we found common ground and so like I, I love this community a lot of people give it to me like sacrifice and and not because they knew my story or background they just they saw that I was trying and you know they met me halfway and so I feel like it's, I feel like everybody has a responsibility if you don't make your home better first like you don't get your house in order first like how can you go somewhere else and speak you know because if anything that pisses me off to, to no degree That's, so did you say you didn't have running water no no and that was a common thing, actually, for a lot of people in the rural part of, uh, and, and I would say probably, probably some now. More was it a rural issue or a money issue? Both. Okay. So a lot of people uh, depended on, you know, they built wells. And so the poor you were depending on where you were living, if you had money for all that kind of infrastructure or not. Um, and we just, you know, my, my grandparents, uh, from what I was told, like helped build a house that my mom and dad were living in. And. Um, but it was just a process and then our neighbors and it was like one house might have it the next house did one house might have it the next house did uh, it just you just depended on where you were another reason we need more David Joiners yeah. right because I mean, Rocky Mountain has been the proverbial uh, brain drain historically right I mean, mm -hmm. uh, people see opportunity elsewhere much quicker than they see the opportunity in Rocky Mountain that's why you have a decreasing population base 100% right and we were taught that I mean that's kind of shifting as far as the thought process of there is now this real push to like no we want our kids to come back here yeah. but when I was in school it was common I mean you were the success was you know do what you gotta do get out of here yeah. um, and, and I understand that they wanted opportunity oh wait isn't that really what we're working on here yes yeah. Is that, you know, economic development in rural communities, you know, and I don't mean rural as an offensive term. No. But, I mean, in rural communities, economic development always seems to be focused around how many chicken plants we can improve mm -hmm. and not about how to improve the quality of life. Yeah. Right? And, like, that's what we're doing here is working on quality of life. Uh, Absolutely. I was talking earlier. I said, you know, I think I kind of look at this as community center 2.0. You know, community mm -hmm. centers used to be publicly funded. Yeah. Kind of let's bring everybody together. And while that model's outdated, you know, theory still exists and that is that people need to come together and be together and recognize that there's different thoughts and we're what people are working on and we can discuss things and like that's such a powerful tool yeah right and like this kind of functions as that right yeah and uh at rocky mount mills at the end of the day if all we end up doing is making people feel differently about rocky mountain as a community then victory is ours absolutely i mean that's kind of the power of these buildings right Salt and Durham, we saw it here. You have a building. It was one of the larger, most historic, it's 200 year anniversary, right? Mm -hmm. Industry in Rocky Mountain, business in Rocky Mountain, and then it failed. Mm -hmm. And it boarded up, and you drive by the fence with the razor wire, and all it says to you is, look, you failed, look, you yeah. failed, look, you it's failed. It's an emotional sign so of decline. It's a daily emotional yeah. beatdown. Yeah. Right? And then all of a sudden, it changes, it reshapes, and you retell your story. Yeah. So, you know, with Rocky Mount, I would I say, I say laughingly, but like, we ain't going to procreate our way out of this, mm -hmm. right? Rocky Mount has to grow because people choose to live in Rocky Mount. Mm -hmm. All of our rural communities have to grow because people choose to live in those communities. So what are the reasons people are going to choose to live in communities, right? And yeah. so that's like, a, that's what we've studied for years. That's what we started with with American Tobacco and what we learned about all these company recruitments, you know, all the... People chose to live in the triangle because it was a great place to live, yeah. right? Diversity of choices of where to live. You can two hours from the beach, two hours from the mountains, world-class education, world-class parks, world-class art museum, great concerts, great, da, 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 right? I mean, yeah. it's affordable. Like, that's what, why people chose to live there.
work on school systems. We work, work on school systems here. We work on school systems in Durham and in Raleigh with, with both Capital Broadcasting and the Fletcher Foundation. And what I really find interesting is when you work with them, we always walk in these rooms and we're working on the school systems, right? And the conversation immediately focuses on, for the entire time, it focuses on what are we doing for uh, those who need the most help? What are we doing for those who need the most help? That is always the conversation, okay? Yeah. Why don't we think about that conversation a little differently and say, and this might be a little seething to some, but why don't, why don't we ever say, hey, um, how do we get you to bring your kids back to public school because we have this great STEM program or we have this great school here, we have this great thing going on here? No. Because I think one thing we all know, right, mm -hmm. is that poor schools will fail. Yeah, they, they're going to fail. Yeah. I mean, we can't throw enough resources at that. We do know that economically balanced and diverse schools mm -hmm. can succeed. So, you know, one thing we don't work on well enough is how do we get people who have left the public school system to come back because of the high-end quality of the system, yeah. right? What I always tell people, when you want to see the truth in the community, let a school board just mention, just casually mention, hey, we might have to look at redistricting, and all holy hell will break loose, right? The seemingly, like, people love their diversity, but, like, you know, Look, I'm all for diversity, but my kid's not going, you know, to that school. But nobody's having fun. So why are we okay with any kid? You know, going to, and I'll use another example. When I first got involved with Boys and Girls Club here, one of the board members, and this was, I was completely naive to it. I didn't know anything about Boys and Girls Club other than, like, just seeing commercials and the bands. I was talking to one of the board members. He was talking about it. He was passionate about it. And he was like, you know, this is the best place for kids. So just out of curiosity, I was like, oh, well, do your, do your kids go? And then he looked at me like, no. And I'm like, well, what? Well, that's weird. You know, that's a weird <laughs> sell. <laughs> you just told me it was literally the best place for people. You know, there's nothing more personal than your kids. Exactly. Your kids are not exactly. social experiments, exactly. right? That's the quote. That's yeah. a, it's, dude, you know how hard that is? And that sword cuts every which way. Yeah. But that's why it just shows, to me, that's always the real measure of what's really going on in the community. Because you look at the school, you look at the fight over how it's done, because that's when people will come out because of that fear. They're protecting what matters the most to them. Correct. Um, but I think it, it also makes it the case to me one of the biggest strategic missteps for, for nonprofit organizations, for school systems, for a lot of institutions. The most successful leaders that we all ever talk about were all great communicators. Every single one of them. We remember Lincoln for being a great communicator. Churchill, Martin Luther King, you go down the list. That, whether you agree with this policy, Ronald Reagan was a great communicator. But Did you just summon Reagan? He was, he, he was a great communicator. What the hell, man? But when you look at just what we were talking about, like the example you gave about the park or school system, they can never explain it. The, the, they, well, I always ask you, it's like, if that nonprofit doesn't have somebody who is solely paid to be the communication force for them, then to me, it lets me know strategically they're going to cap out at some point. You've got to have somebody who understands and can make these yeah. arguments. Uh, but because otherwise, we're just getting caught up in, oh, this, we got to help these poor kids because their mama was this and their dad was that, and that's all the story is. But that's the problem. People don't know. The nonprofit world is. Yeah. But institutions uh, as well. Oh, it, it, by the way, I mean, Nonprofits, for profit, for profit, yeah. nonprofit. We all function the same thing yeah. at some at some time. But what you see is, you know, everybody says, "Geez, you know." So when we're we're doing film film product work for the Fletcher Foundation, what's well, easy? You're just giving money away. It's like, well, no, you're just trying to help people. No, I'm actually trying to help people. Help people. It's even harder. Yeah. Right. Because that person has baggage and context and mm -hmm. pride and Absolutely. stories and history. You know, and they have all these things that wrap up and make that conversation so much more than just I'm trying to help people.
Mm-hmm. You know, trying to get nonprofits to work together. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. It's a nightmare. It's a hard thing to overcome. And we see it day in and day out. You know, a community like Durham has 14, 1,600 nonprofits. Wow. How do you give money to that? Yeah. What do I do if I have 50 at-risk youth organizations asking for money? Am I supposed to give them each a dollar? Yeah. It, doesn't, it, it doesn't work, right? It's not feasible to do that. And so, you know, how we reshape the nonprofit community is high on my list in terms of becoming more efficient, more effective, better communicators of what they do, what they do well, more metric-driven. Yeah. Right? More metric driven mm-hmm. is important. You know, one thing we've seen, especially in a community like Durham, where you have a millennial population, a startup population, is everybody wants to be involved in the next think tank that's thinking about thinking about thinking Absolutely. about thinking about thinking. <laughs> and, and, and we've, we've um, kind of forgot that there's some blocking and tackling that we need to do day in and day out. Like, for instance, 100%. people need to eat, you know, and so you have food pantries and the work of the Salvation Army and the work of, you know, the YMCA's. I mean, there are organizations that might not be sexy, right? It might be my granddaddy's brand, but the work they do is so critical. Mm -hmm. And I worry moving forward, like how are we going to, Boys and Girls Club, Mm -hmm. you know, those are long lasting brands that have important impact, but for a younger generation, it's kind of like, you know, I want to invest in something a little more startup, a little cooler, a little newer. You hit the nail on the head. That's really tough. You really hit the nail on the head. And that is, I think, a real big concern. Uh, And I've, I give a lot of talks, especially to youth, young professional groups, and I always will say, "I knew you were a talker." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but because it's the idea we've turned, it's become trendy, right? Like giving is a trendy thing. So if it's not some fun activity, then they're not there day in and day out where the grinding needs to be done. And and that and I'll give a great example. I shared something recently on uh, on social media, and it was about the migrant crisis. And I remember just stating some facts just to make people aware. And I remember some. People that I generally was surprised because they're very educated, like have done Wait, all the migrant. Like, what? Which part of it? The caravan? No, not that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a caravan that's gonna invade America. Invade <laughs> America. Yeah. But no, just like the international migrant people fleeing from the countries and countries figuring out how to take gotcha. them in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they were like, you know, well, the thing is, people don't know what do we do about that, and and and, I, and my thing was like. You know, you're an educated person. Call your congressman. You know, like, do some... Re- like, the fact that just at that level of responsibility, w- w- I don't know, just going out the window, people are jumping to the fun event. So, but if you held a rally for it, right? Say you held a rally in downtown Raleigh, everybody in the mom is going to show up that Saturday and want to be there. But then after that, there's nobody putting pressure on the legislators consistently. There's, there's nobody helping to try to, you know, support that one organization who's really doing the effective work. Um, I, I'm really concerned. We're not pivoting. <laughs> I'm just we're not pivoting in the legislature. It's not going. To we're happen. not. I'm just I'm just saying that 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 bigger picture, especially for the generation to come up, is is concerning to me. That it's not. We're in that kind of crossroads. Or are they understanding that this is real work? And at the end of the day, you just got to do some grunt work too. There are parts of it that's not fun. There are parts of it that's just consistent oh, and building relationships and that type of thing. It's Blocking and tackling. It's yeah. not even that. It's putting your uniform on in the locker room and trying to get out without hurting yourself. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, like, our community's failing at. Mm-hmm. And I love think tanking. I can think tank with the best of them. Yeah. You know? But, like, that's not, at the end of the day, making the biggest difference day in and day out. effect on people. 100%. Day in and day out. 
they did many, many trips. The fact that local governments matter, economic development, schools, and all. There, whenever I have to begin with talking to Eastern North Carolina, kind of my rallying cry is like, look, there's no cavalry coming for us. That they're, they're not. They're, Help is not on yeah, the Yeah, it's not. There's no silver bullet plan that's coming. They would have said it already. Right. Like, we're going to have to do this ourselves. But to me, that's where I find the hope. That is where I find the hope. It's like, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to rebuild ourselves. We're going to have to figure this out um, because we can. And that's why local leadership matters so much. You know, and when we're in a period where we have um, political beliefs that are, are, are so uh, diametrically opposed and, and, and frankly so extreme, right? On both sides. On both sides. Mm-hmm. On both sides. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, you know what I mean? Like on both sides. Yeah. What you end up happening is what I've referred to as the amortization of political leadership. Where you have, you know, a city council that might have gone from having um, 70 years of combined political leadership experience to a city council that has a combined six. That's a really good point. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, experience matters. Cities are businesses. Counties are businesses. School systems are businesses. And I don't mean that in like the, it's a business. I don't mean that in a, yeah, in, yeah. I mean that in a way of like, at the end of the day, like you do need to take out the trash. You do need to run mm-hmm. the water system. You do need to keep us safe. Like there's basic blocking and tackling business requirements of a city or a county mm-hmm. that have to happen. Right? And, and what I worry about is when we get extreme in our ideologies, mm-hmm. what happens is like that's, it's like baby and bathwater issue, right? I mean, it's like, oh, I'm not worried about that. Yeah. I'm worried about, you know, name it. I'm worried about it. I mean, it's kind of this issue of affordable housing, which I think is so critical, but like, it's not so critical that it needs to be, you know, we're going to make sure we do that, you know, despite all other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's not had in a conversation in a productive way. It's having a way to appease a talking point. Right. right. You know, like to throw some meat out. Uh, about like we're going to talk about affordable housing and just and they and, and then you don't ever really get a sub. It was the last time you talked about any issue like that where it wasn't anecdotal. That's true, absolutely. Where it wasn't like, well, you know, how about this situation? It's mm-hmm. like, well, okay, you just literally gave me a single. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know of any policy or procedure yeah. that can literally solve for your one anecdote you want to share. Right? What are the facts? What are the stats? Who are what I call the adults in the room yeah. to have an educated conversation about what's the status, where do we need to get, and how are we going to get there? Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I amateur leadership does not result in planning. You know, yeah. any great community was built on a plan, right? Yeah. Good results without good planning is good luck. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's my dad always says that. I mean, and he's right. I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly what it is. I mean, yeah. if you have a good outcome and you didn't have a good plan, then you just got lucky. Yeah, that's a good point. So how many communities do you look at and say have a really good plan of this is how we're going to get where we're going to need to get in the next 10 years, 20 years, and 30 years? They're not many. Yeah. I was, yeah. In, I was in Nashville recently. Um, Tennessee. Nashville, Tennessee. Um, which actually has done an amazing job around affordable housing. And they did an amazing job around affordable housing because they had goals. Right. Tell me what we need to have. How many affordable units do we need to have in what period of time? And I can work on getting us there. It can't just be we need affordable housing. Yeah. To what end? I mean, like, tell me what we need and let me statistically work on it. Because it's not just about an affordable tax credit project. It's also about a single family housing rentals. It's about all types of things, right? Do we need zero to 50 AMI? Do we need 50 to 100 AMI? Do we need 100 to 120 AMI? Do we have teachers and firemen and policemen? Do we, do we have a live and afford to live? Right, I mean, it's, this stuff is hard. This stuff is complicated. And, and we, we ain't gonna solve it with emotion. No, 
no, we'll make it worse with unchecked emotion. And I think, you know, the, the biggest thing, I guess, kind of worth the closing on is relationships matter to do all that, right? The local leaders that are able to do that in those communities because they have relationships across different, you've got to, at the end of the day, all that public, like, throwing stuff and, and, the, and the good thing to say and the amen, you know, applause lines, you've got to be able to have somebody behind the scenes you can call uh, if you're this official or this nonprofit leader or this person at the school system and talk to this person and say, hey, can we meet and move this thing forward? Like, and that's, the, to me, the, the, the biggest opportunity, but also my biggest concern is that there is not always, it doesn't seem to be a move towards, like, we really got to have these, like, relationships uh, with our officials. You know, even in, in regional, regionalism is still... Uh, people say it and give it lip service, but they are lying. I know there's one thing I'm not gonna lie, they are lying when they say most of these communities are regionally trying to work together. They're not. They see it as a us versus them, or if, we, if we're too cozy, then we're gonna lose out. Um, versus if we work together as a unit, yeah, we'd still be competitive, but we work together and have a relationship. We'll have a better chance of landing some of these things and rebuilding together. Um, strategically making sure we're not duplicating services yeah. um, that we don't need to be paying for. You know, it's, uh, it comes down to assumption of motives. Yes. Yes. The root of all evil. Yeah. You might yeah. believe what you believe, but, and, and I can agree mm-hmm. or not agree with that, but what I can't do is somehow self-determine why you believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Biden, um, mm-hmm. since you're summoning all these great political, <laughs> <laughs> political names. One example. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden, uh, recently heard him speak and, and and he talked about this is one of his biggest points was this notion of the political failures of today are all wrapped around motive and mm-hmm. why people believe why we believe why why we believe what people believe mm-hmm. and and he talked about a story of um, you know here's a controversial figure Jesse Helms mm-hmm. um, uh, and he talked about how when he was in the Senate and they were working on um, the original ADA Americans with, Americans with Disabilities Act. And this was the original requirements around handicapped needs and what businesses and public areas had to have. Mm-hmm. And he told a story about how he was talking with somebody and Jesse Helms walked up to them and started really going off on, we shouldn't, we can't make businesses do this, we can't do this, this is not fair, what are we, who are we to say they have to do this, this is more government overreach, right? Really mm-hmm. went after the need to do ADA. And, uh, Biden went into his next meeting and he said to somebody, you know, that Jesse Helms, you know, I can't believe he feels the way he feels about this. How does he not have a heart? You know, why is he doing, you know, why would he do this? And the person said, well, you know, that's really interesting. You know, what if I told you that um, Jesse Helms and his wife have adopted a severely disabled child? What would that tell you? Right? Yeah. I mean, the point being, like, he assumed that Jesse Helms had some problem with helping handicapped people, mm-hmm. and that was his reasoning. And that that determined an emotion and a feeling and a thought about why he was acting when he had no clue. Absolutely. Right, it's going back to that notion. If people just talk about what they know about, we know one would have much to say. Well, yeah, yeah. So I think if we actually took a step back and we actually said for a second, let's just assume the best. Mm-hmm. Let's have an assumption of optimism. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that this person actually does have good thoughts about what they're trying to do and they're not evil or whatever mm-hmm. term we want to use. If we just took a step back and assumed the best in people for a little while, I think shit would get through. Sorry. <laughs> I think stuff would get a lot better. I made it the whole time. He did, right? <laughs> but I think things would get a lot better, right? Yeah, I, mean, no, I agree. I, 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 
I don't know how to act reasonably when I feel like someone else is doing something for ill purposes. Yeah. And that's how I feel like, I feel that way a lot. And I don't like feeling that yeah. way. I'm, you probably, you feel that way too, right? Yeah. I, th- I think what's helped me a lot though is I've been so intentional about the relationship building. And, and so like that, there's constant, I'm going to build a relationship with the person first, right? Get to know a person. Yeah. Get to know a person. Yeah. Just give them the benefit of the doubt. No matter what I've heard, you know, I'm just giving them the benefit of the doubt. And, and, and I have the weirdest selection of friends and, and you know, really weird, just, you know, the places <laughs> I eat dinner at, but it, but it's allowed me to get a wealth of information and just perspective. Uh, and it helps me understand a lot of it is more so an ignorance to a thing yeah. versus an ill motive. And I, I, the last thing I'll say, it's, it's just a nerdy thing, but one of the best examples to me is if you look up Henry Sword, who was Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State, he made what his, is your deal? I'm just, just hear me. <laughs> <laughs> because like, the thing that fascinates me about him it's like, yeah, no, one up. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I'm going to call this some obscure person. Let's go. But during the, like, the most perilous of times, like he made a speech, the irrepressible conflict that he gave in New York. and he, But he was making one of the brilliant arguments against slavery, better than actually Lincoln made it. Um, but he also made the point, even at a time that his political opponents, as something that issue like slavery, that they really, everybody's attacking everybody's motives. But he was like, it really wasn't that. What his point was like, they've got good people on that side. We got they were a lot of them are arguing in an abstract way. And I'm like, if he can make that argument then, like, which I don't remember, I couldn't imagine making it. You know, like, hey, all of these guys aren't bad. I probably would have been on the side of yeah, they all are horrible. <laughs> but he, but he was looking at it in a more in a broader context and understanding the human issue of it. Um, I, I think if they can do that, you're saying, how about we just start doing things because it's the right thing. Yeah. Or, or just, just build relationships and, and let's see where it goes from there before uh, we attack the person. Right, but aren't you tired of having people say, you know, we got to work on that third grade reading rate because it, you know, it reduces people in jail, which is savings. Yes. How about we need to work on the third grade <laughs> yeah. reading rate because it's the right damn thing to do? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, what, whatever happened just to the notion of like human kindness? Yeah. Of like, what is the right thing? What is our moral obligation? Right, yeah. I don't need the I, I don't need economic justification for from moral yeah. obligation. I don't need it. And, and to your point, I think that's what, I think nonprofits have got beat over the head so much with the you got to be more like businesses that a lot of them started just like doing that. Yeah, we make every argument that way. Like instead of just saying like you know, hey, you know, people shouldn't be dying of hunger on the street in our community because yeah. that's wrong. You know, <laughs> why? Well, what's the economic justification? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> If we feed five people, then, you know, I would go offset that cost, <laughs> you know, tomorrow. All right, I've hit my quota of time with you for the next multiple months. Yes. I feel good. Like, I'm going to get something special in Christmas. That was good. Thank you for what you did Rocky Mountain, baby. Thank you. I'm serious about yeah. that. No, sir, and I appreciate it. And thank you and your company just for being such good community-focused partners. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Experience. T&E is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear, our graduate editor is Kristen Gallahue, our graduate assistant editor is David Mueller, and our communications assistant is Haley Jones. This episode was produced by David Mueller, who also wrote our theme music. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at philanthropyjournal.org. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience, and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.